Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a, a really exciting founder, you know, a founder that uh, has been there, done it. You know, his last company, he took it public. And we're going to be talking today about some really interesting stuff, you know, mainly about how to deal with the skeptics, you know, during the early days of building your business, how to go about recruiting, you know, the best and, and really fitting it, you know, into the culture too, in order to really build something meaningful. And then also finding the balance, you know, when it comes to the personal and the professional side, you know, especially in his case, he took the company public while having a wife and three kids and also, you know, dealing with changing market conditions. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Eddie Martucci. Welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks, Alejandro. Great to be here. So originally born in Connecticut, in West Hartford. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Oh man, it's. I mean, I had. I was very fortunate. I had a family that was uh, supportive. Family I had a brother, a sister, a mom, a dad. You know, a a um, upper middle class town, good schools. So, um, no real things to persevere through in childhood. Um, and uh, and I was just always interested in science. My kids like to make fun of me now. I was. I tell them it's true. I was actually interested in school. I, I loved school. I liked learning stuff. And uh, and that was the environment I grew up in. Uh, my my parents actually owned a community pharmacy, one of the last independent pharmacies. So I also got to see, um, you know, the healthcare through small town business. That's amazing. So uh, how was that too? you know, to see your parents because they had a pharmacy and you were able to see the ups, the downs, you know, also of them, you know, owning their own thing. So how was that for you, too? Yeah, it took me years until I was able to really reflect on it because it was just part of my life growing up. Um, I think it was really interesting to see how much work my parents put in, right? The amount of work. I mean, they were it, it was their business from scratch. Um, and so the hours they put in, the kind of blood, sweat, tears, stress, um, but also being able to do things that they thought were important in the community, right? Like, they because they owned and operated, they were able to say, you know what, I think we want to deliver home health care to nursing homes. And they just did it right. There wasn't bureaucracy. They weren't having and hawing about, you know, feeling stuck in life. They were just doers and movers. And I think that was um, it was amazing to watch. Um, the other thing is I got to see, you know, a pharmacy is literally the the end of delivery of medicine right on the long continuum of delivering a new medicine. That's it. That's where it actually gets to a patient. Um, and so I, I can't help but think that influenced me kind of every step of my academic journey saying, you know what, I want to do something that actually gets to patients, probably because I got to see thousands and thousands of people get their medicine every day. So um, had to had to have been an important part of my upbringing. So obviously, it's no surprise that you ended up going to college and uh, there you majored in biochemistry. But one right. thing that is really interesting here is, I mean, obviously you grew up with your family, you know, being in business, having their own business. But what you decided to do was to go into research, you know, instead of uh, the business side, you know, at the beginning. So how how did that go? I mean, how did that come about? Yeah, well, it's funny. My uh, my parents like to joke. My father told me, um, you will not take over this pharmacy. And I'm not sure if it was 
you know, the business model, or I think it was more that he wanted me to do my own thing, um, as opposed to kind of default back into the pharmacy. And then it was not an option anyways, because he sold it to CVS while I was in college. So he, he made sure that, uh, that I couldn't take over the pharmacy. Um, but what actually happened from my own internal perspective was, um, I went to Providence College, I, a great place, small liberal arts school, really got to go deep in research. I got to do research while there. Um, but we had a number of symposia. And, and I, when I get asked now about budding scientists and how you can you know, stoke inspiration, I always say this. One of the most amazing things is for one of the semesters, we, had, we were forced to go very deep on a brand new research topic and present that to the whole department. And that's very scary as like an 18, 19 year old. Um, but doing that, it, it kind of lit something inside me. Um, I ended up researching a new drug design and I was like, that's what I want to do. <laughs> so I remember finishing my presentation. I don't know if it went well. I think it went okay. But I, all I remember is I finished it and I was like, I can't believe there are people that do this type of stuff for a job. So right around halfway through college, I said, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I, I don't want to be a doctor. I don't want to run a business. I want to go and jump into research. Um, and that was that was what I ended up doing immediately after college. So then so then let's talk about that research, you know, company, because that's where you were able to really see the whole thing, you know, around drugs, you know, and and and, and what's the design, you know, behind them. So uh, so what what did you learn during this time? Yeah, I was um, I went to Yale University for my PhD, and it was a department that has a couple Nobel Prizes in it. It is it really specializes in extremely exquisite and really careful um, high science, and that was awesome. Um, but I actually ended up choosing an advisor named Karen Anderson. She's been part of uh, drug discovery in a few different um, classes of drugs uh, in the pharmacology department. And so what I got to see was the mesh of those two worlds. I got to see how you could do incredibly deep and sophisticated science, but how you could directly apply that to finding new medicines, right? And often in academia or in the research world, these two things are held separate, right? It's like either you're doing really sophisticated research or you're selling out in the business world. And, uh, and the, the lab and the group I was in, uh, I was able to see both of those together. Um, and then I was able to meet a few different entrepreneurs just through my own explorations while I was at Yale and in New York, actually meet a few entrepreneurs who had taken new ideas and built companies out of them. Um, and while while I did pretty well at science, I my uh, PhD was in uh, trying to discover a couple new classes of drugs. Um, I just got bit by the entrepreneur bug from afar. I saw people founding companies and I said that that startup thing looks really, really cool. Um, and so that's that's what captured my attention. I knew I wasn't going to be a research scientist long term. I'll, I'll leave that to the brilliant people who are incredible at that. Um, I said, I, I think I can have a talent for taking new ideas and, and building new products out of them. So then at what point does say, the opportunity of joining Pure Tech Ventures come uh, knocking? Because, I mean, obviously now they've grown quite a bit, but when you right. join them, you know, they were just, um, you know, about a dozen people. So how did that come about? Yeah, uh, just a straight up cold application, man. This is a good example of when I looked on, I looked on the uh, website and like I was, I was intimidated. I mean, people on the board are people like Bob Langer, who obviously founder of Moderna and, and about three dozen other companies and, and a whole host of other people who are incredibly 
bright minds and successful entrepreneurs. Um, Daphne Zohar, who who started and ran PureTech and still does, uh, is an incredible powerhouse. And uh, I just applied, man. I was like, I had no connections, um, but I said, this looks like uh, I didn't even know a place like that existed where you could learn to start companies. Um, and so I I don't know. I think I I lucked my way into a job there. I was like you said, one of about a dozen people, and my job was to start companies out of new science. So. It was really hard. It was grueling, um, very sort of difficult um, to, you know, it, it was an environment that was somewhere between an entrepreneur and a VC. And so it was like, it was, there were high demands and we were really trying to do big things. Um, but I got to learn how to start companies from great people um, and learn how to, how to sort of put yourself into projects to get them off the ground. It was incredible. So then, obviously, you know, during this time is where the, Achille, you know, like you literally like what a smooth transition because you go from research to then seeing it more from like perhaps like the investment and incubation incubation side to all of a sudden making the jump to really build your own business. So how was that the the the, the idea of Achille? How did it come, you know, to life? You know, what were the sequence of events and how did you guys go about, you know, saying let's let's do this thing? Sure. Yeah, one of the cool things about the pure tech model was there's a lot of there was enough time afforded for brainstorming. And so I was actually working on another company getting it off the ground that was a mental health company using a device to stimulate the brain. Um and we had a couple brainstorms and the what we were looking at this is the genesis of Achilles. We were looking at the standard of mental health care treatment which is it still is awful, right? It's either medicines that have side effects or essentially nothing else. You, you can try to find a therapist. Um, on, the t on the other side of the coin, the technology, consumer technology industry was thriving, right? Because if you rewind about 12, 13 years ago, this is right when the iPhone just started to explode. And so we're, we're sitting here looking at the consumer tech world and we're saying, everything is being done with your phone now. There are apps for literally everything almost. Um, why isn't there anything in healthcare? And I the conversation started to really take shape when we said, instead of helping medicine with, with an app, what if an app could treat a disease? And that was like a crazy idea at the time. Um, no one had really put that forward. There was a whole digital health industry, but it was more like tools and, you know, and connections and patient engagement and stuff like that. And we said, I think there's, I think there's an opportunity to make an app or a software application that could actually stimulate the brain in a specific way so that it could be a treatment. Um, that was the idea. So that was the kernel. What actually got it off the ground was uh, I spent about a year talking to neuroscientists all over the country and internationally and found a number of technologies, including the one we decided to license, that, um, that had at least some initial science that showed we could predictably stimulate the brain through sensory and motor stimulus. Uh, and that's what that's where we went all in, put the company together and said, we want to be the first software application that directly treats a disease. And we don't want to just stop there. We want it to be an entertainment app. So we kind of it's a funny story. We before we had even ever talked to the FDA, we were covered in the press because I said we want to be the first FDA approved video game platform. And uh, and we made that statement. We kind of put the stake in the ground and then we just started running. 
So then, what were the uh, what were the early days say uh, like? You know, for Achille, what 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 did they look like? Whew, uh, it's hard to remember back that far when we were only a couple of people. Um, I it was interesting because it's Achille is it is now you know has two FDA approved products, one for kids, one for adolescents. It's a version of the same product. Um, we at the time and even today. We're a hybrid between like a medicine company, right? We have to do all the clinical trials to prove that our treatment can actually work. And we've now done that in ADHD. So Endeavor RX and Endeavor OTC are our products um, that Endeavor OTC, you can get directly from the app store to treat adult ADHD. Um, Endeavor RX is a prescription through a doctor. Um, we had to do all the work to get to that point, right? So we had to do all the clinical trials. We had to do all of the detailed you know, quality management. We had to actually design the product with cognitive neuroscientists. But on the flip side, it is an entertainment app, right? It looks and feels like a video game that's on an iPhone or Android. So um, from day one, I like our earliest, earliest employees that I recruited included a medical device developer, a drug developer, an artist, and a video game designer. And so the early days of Achille were kind of fascinating. They were like, we were building prototypes. We would have people use these prototypes, and then we would literally look at the source code and the and the frame by frame data, and we'd say, "Is this product adapting the way it should be?" And then we'd jump on the phone with our neuroscientist co-founders and have them scrutinize the data. And so these teams were these wild interdisciplinary teams, but we were taking extremely painstaking care to develop the algorithm in a way that it would maintain its kind of the patented essence, but actually be able to adapt in a consumer product. I've I've never seen anything quite like it, and it was it was really fun time in the early days. So for the people listening, what ended up being the business model of Achille? How were you guys really monetizing? Sure. Well, we've actually evolved it over time. So um, we initially started, and we do have Endeavor RX, that prescription product, as a more drug-like business model. And so that is a treat again. It's a prescribed treatment for ADHD, but you download the app. You don't take a pill, right? You download an app. You play a video game, but it's a it's a clinical video game treatment. And that business model is that each prescription has a cost associated with it, right? So each one month of prescription has a cost. It's priced roughly at the same price as Adderall. Um, and so either insurance company covers it, which is still in the early days of insurance coverage, or a patient pays for it. Um, we have recently, as we've entered the adult market, we've adapted and shifted our business model um, because what we learned through our prescription product is that there are still far too many stakeholders that are getting in the way of patients getting innovative treatments. That includes insurers, sometimes it includes doctors. Um, and so what we have in Endeavor OTC is now a subscription business model. So it's a purchase directly by the consumer with a subscription to either a few months or a year subscription where you have continuous access to this piece of software. Um, so it's really interesting because we're running sort of two business models um, depending on the market. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either 
knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So before going public, you know, and doing the SPAC, you guys, uh, you know, went through several rounds. I mean, obviously that was a uh, 150 million in a couple of rounds before the uh, IPO or before going public with the SPAC. And then at the time of the SPAC, you guys raised another 162 million. I know that early on, you know, when you guys were doing the, perhaps the early stages of fundraising, you were met with certain uh, skeptics. Uh, so how did you address them and how did you overcome that hurdle? Yeah, it's, it, we, I'm sure there are a lot of people that deal with skepticism. We have to be in the, in the kind of far end of that, because if you can, today, it sounds not so crazy, right? Oh, okay. A healthcare video game. Sure. But 10 years ago, like this just wasn't even in people's mindset. So we would show up and we had, we literally had investors laugh <laughs> when we started pitching. Um, I had, I remember this phrase, I had a guy sit in a room and cut us off five minutes into the pitch and say, what are we talking about a glorified Pac-Man here? And as soon as you have an investor say something like that, I mean, you know, the meeting is, is off, right? Because at that point, there's just, you're so different in your context than what you're trying to do. And so we weren't just trying to take a video game to market in a special way. We were trying to make, essentially invent a new class of medicine, right? There is no class of medicine like this previously. So um, it was, you know, it was tough sometimes, right? There were times where um, there was skepticism. So we dealt with extreme skepticism. We also dealt with people who kind of believed it, but they said, let's not go the whole medical route. So they liked the technology, but they said, no, let's shift the business model. And I think this is very common for founders and entrepreneurs is that you get VCs who say, I kind of like what you're doing, but let me pivot your entire business model or really your vision. What I was always open to, so here's how we persevered. What I was always open to was changes in the model or the operating model or the steps to get there. But what I was unwilling to sacrifice was the vision, right? I think it was so important that um, that patients, all these millions of patients who deal with cognitive issues and things like attention conditions and, and beyond um, actually had access to what we were building. And that's critical. So uh, I wasn't willing to kind of take an early off-ramp exit to you know change, change our whole story. Um, and what I did was I used, and, and I still do this today, I started to learn to use every fundraising conversation as data collection. Um, 
when I was first doing it, I used everyone as like a scoreboard, like, are we doing well or not? And that just gets crushing because the val anytime you're doing something innovative, most people don't understand it. Once I started using it as data collection and refinement, um, it helped us realize, all right, we might have to go to a few dozen investors or maybe more, um, but this is just a process. And um, luckily in the meantime, well, I guess not luckily, in the meantime, and this is what I always uh, now coach entrepreneurs on, is keep demonstrating the value of your product. Right. So I know sometimes you need a big bulk of funding to do that, but there's always something you can do to keep the belief in your product. And so every next time you meet an investor, there's a little bit more you can show about your product that cult that kind of reinforces that belief. And so that's what we did. We we kind of persevered and we said we we came with passion, saying, no, people deserve this product. And then every month or every few months, we had more and more data that this product was actually valuable. And eventually those two things converged and, and a few investors, um, few investors got it. So, so what was that journey to of going public? Because uh, doing the whole SPAC thing, I mean, I'm sure it was not easy. Uh, and, and going from being a private you know, company CEO to a publicly traded company CEO is also different too. So how was that for you? Um, good. I mean, we had, so SPACs, <laughs> SPACs are, have become a dirty word. They were a dirty word and then they got to be a really fun word. And then they really quickly got to be a dirty word again. So SPACs were not used, you know, were used for kind of illegitimate companies for a long time. And then for like a one to two year period, they were actually the, the vehicle for some very legitimate and awesome companies. And so we came in at the tail end of that phase. Um, it was a really interesting journey because when we began that process, we saw this as a mega fundraise, right? Much larger than we could get from a traditional IPO or a private raise. Um, we also saw it as potentially an immediate exit for investors. It's not why we did it as the primary, but you know, the market was going great in you know early 20, uh, 21 and early 22. Market was going great. So we're out there, uh, or rather, I'm sorry, 20, most of 2021. Um, so we are out there, we start the SPAC process, we pick the SPAC suitor, and the first fundraise conversations were going great. And then the end of 2021 hit. And if everyone remembers, both the biotech and the tech markets crashed. And Achille is both a biotech and a tech company. Uh, the good news about a SPAC is by the time we were coming to market and to price the or to list the company, it was eyes wide open, right? We saw what was happening in the market. The fundraise was smaller. Um, but, and so the question was, do we still want to go through with this? Any company in a SPAC can pull out. Um, but the way I viewed this as we had to shift our sights a little bit, the quantum of capital was going to be less, and it was unlikely to be a huge run-up exit for all the investors immediately. But what we saw it instead was as a, was a really good fundraise where we could take in capital. Um, we could become a listed entity and, uh, and then we could grow value. And when we grow value, eventually the stock price will reflect it. So, um, so that was the journey we went on. I get asked all the time, do you regret it? Because, you know, the market's been tough to uh, these companies that have gone by a SPAC and has kind of, you know, depriced them. Um, but I don't regret it because it's funded our vision and we were able to then launch two products. We've gotten now uh, this, this company that had a vision that people were skeptical of has now treated over 50,000 people between our two products and it's growing. 
So, um, so it was a means to an end to keep the business growing. And then what was it like, you know, to, uh, to do this, you know, all of this, I mean, building a company that does this pack and everything. And you also have, you know, a family, you know, a, a wife, you know, three kids. I mean, how were you able to find the balance? It's funny, man. I'm not sure I ever found it. I was definitely aware of it. Um, it. I like to say my kids, their entire memory life, right? The entire life that they can remember, I have been running Achilles. So um, my oldest is 17 years old. And so he was like five when I started Achilles. So basically his whole life and then my other two for sure their whole life. Um, I won't say that I was the best at, you know, at that balance. I don't even know if there is such thing as a balance. I, I think what I always tried to do, and we'll see, I'll look back someday and see if I was successful or not, or feel whether I was successful. I always tried to bring um, the, the same energy to the start of my workday that I would then bring to the start of like my night with my family, right? When I would get home. Um, and you know, it's hard sometimes, but I would basically, I would come home and say, I gotta be, I gotta be the entrepreneur, but now for my family. Right. And so the same way I would motivate employees, I'd come in and I would truly say, this is my time with my family and I'm going to, yeah, I might be exhausted, but I have to. And so I always tried to prioritize at least the time I was there being present. Now I was traveling a ton. Um, so that was my internal process that was you know that I tried to go through. I have an amazing family and kids. It's great. And then of course, I'm waiting for the the climax here. Is uh, I have an incredible wife, right? And so she was holding down the household and keeping me sane and making sure you know the kids were doing what they had to do while she was you know growing her teaching career. Um, so it really is a family effort. Um, I give a ton of credit to my whole family for this journey. Um, but what I tell people is. Like, don't kid yourself. First of all, a lot of people say it's impossible to do this with a family. I disagree and I'm proof that it's not, right? You can have a family and you can grow a company and you can take it public and you can launch a product. Um, however, uh, don't kid yourself and say there's a way to make it perfect all the time, right? It's just freaking hard um, and that's okay. And once I, once I accepted that, all right, it's gonna be hard and there's gonna be times I feel like I'm not, doing as much as I need to for the business. And there's going to be times I feel like I'm definitely not doing what I need to at home, but just keep going. Um, that is the mantra that that kind of helped me the whole time. Just live in, in each of those moments presently when you can. So three to four months ago, you decided to, um, you know, step up to the chairman uh, side of things. Uh, and uh, now, you know, obviously you have a little bit more extra time. So what do you think is next for you, Eddie? Oh, man. Well, first and foremost, I mean, Achilles is at a point, you know, I'm, I always wanted to start this new class of medicine, which we've done now. Um, there's now about 100 companies that are developing software products that are in different phases of clinical trials. So I think what's very clear is that this field of medicine is now inevitable. And I'm really proud to have kind of catalyzed it. And I'm really proud for what Achilles built. Um, I think it was time for Achilles to have a new leader, right? Because they've gone, Achilles has been through many phases of growth. And now we have these two products on the market that are growing. And so um, put in place a CEO who's going to put just as much energy into that next phase. Um, and, you know, I am prioritizing time with my family. So everything we just talked about with balance, um, you know, as I have a couple teenagers here and they're getting ready to go to college, 
is really, really important to me to maximize that time in the near term. So that's where I'm focusing my efforts. Um, of course, I am incubating some ideas. <laughs> so um, I can't help but like build, you know, slide decks of new co's on the side. Um, so I haven't mentioned anything. I'm I'm on a couple boards. Um, I'm definitely interested in, you know, seeing this field of digital therapeutics continue to grow to patients. I think it has incredible promise. I think Endeavor OTC, um, which is our direct-to-consumer product, um, has been incredible. And I hope people with, you know, adults who struggle with ADHD or attention issues go look that product up because it's helping people dramatically every day. And so I'm excited to see that. Um, and in terms of what's my next big thing, uh, I don't know. And I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to perfect it. I, I guess, as we've talked about here, you can probably see in my whole career, I've rarely thought like five steps ahead. I think that's a fool's errand. I tend to think like one step ahead, like what's the next best move? Where is my energy? What am I passionate about? And right now that's, you know, keeping Achilles, making sure governance wise, it's doing the right things. And then uh, spending a ton of time with my family and, and thinking about where the future is going. Obviously, we're in a time where both technology with AI and drug development um, and biotech is going through incredible technological revolutions. So I'm, uh, I'm watching that and reading a whole lot. Amazing. So, Eddie, if I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time to 2012, to maybe that moment where you were thinking about bringing this you know, to market and, 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 and making something happening on your own, and let's say you're able to stop that younger self on the tracks and you're able to give that younger Eddie one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Whoa, good question. Just in case anyone is curious, you did not prep me with that question. So uh, <laughs> this is not a canned response. This is That's right. <laughs> um, can I get two? I think let's, I have let's two. Do it. Let's do I it. Would, I would tell Eddie, I got two things for you. So listen up. Bring your attention. Um, I think number one is I would say uh, stress is good. So you want stress, but don't try to perfect every step. So I think uh, there's a lot of wasted energy and stress by trying to make every step of by like really gripping everything so tight that you're trying to perfect it. And I do think there were moments throughout the history of Achilles where we probably slowed down because we were trying to grip and hold on to some something and force fit it when instead if you could step back and say whatever vision you had is not going to be perfect there's going to be 50,000 things that go wrong or change so just keep adapting i think in the end i did that but i think could have done it much more quickly and with uh and with a lot less kind of dramatic stress if you will <laughs> so um so i think it both serves you know it serves being a um a present and functioning human but it also has business ramifications that, you know, you can grow a business a little more expediently. So I think that's number one. Um, I think number two is uh, related and it's um, don't. So when I talked before about the, the big vision, I think I would tell myself and tell other entrepreneurs, uh, don't sacrifice your vision, but increase your move up your bar of the things that you're willing to change and experiment with always. Um, I think there were points in my journey that I had that bar too high, I guess too low or too high, depending on how you think about it. Meaning, you know, if if people had a different idea or I was considering a different idea, I'd say, no, 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 but that's not the 
that's not the plan we built, right? And so what I think I calibrated over a decade was what are those truly untouchable, like high level strategies, the high level North stars that that is the essence of what we're building and we're not going to change that. But all of the operations and tactics and really calibrating what's that tactic that um, anything that's a tactic and an operational principle can change. And what I would tell myself is be open to that and just trust your gut, right? So there were a lot of times, and, and I tell a lot of entrepreneurs this now on that second point, there are a lot of times where there's always four different opinions in the room, right? Whether it's your own executive team, whether it's your investors, your board members, the general public, there's tons of opinions. Everyone thinks they know the answer. Um, the truth is you as an operator often know the answer, but if you are too scared or too rigid to, to kind of adapt into that answer, you're just going to waste time. So I think I'd tell myself, like, trust your gut, read, read the data, and just be willing to adapt on, on most parts of the business um, to keep it growing the smoothest. Amazing. So Eddie, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Oh, absolutely. So I'm on, you know, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Eddie Martucci. I'm on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is probably the best place um, for business contacts. Um, and, and so I'm just Eddie Martucci on LinkedIn as well. So um, people should absolutely feel free to get in touch with, with new ideas. You know, if they, if they have advice, if, they're, uh, if they need advice, if, or most importantly, what most people go through is they're building a company. It seems to be going really fast. They think everything's great, but they're dealing with, you know, imposter syndrome or the, the, I call it the house of cards syndrome is you always think that all the great things you've built are like at a flick of a wrist, the whole thing can crumble. All these things are very normal. Uh, and I just love to talk to entrepreneurs and people building awesome ideas. Amazing. Well, Hey Eddie, thank you so much for being on the dealmaker show. It has been an honor to have you with us. Absolutely. Thanks so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.